Welcome, fellow Earthlings, to the In Tune to Nature radio program on Radio Free Georgia, an eco and animal protection radio show that aims to improve your environmental literacy to make you a more inspired and informed eco-citizen and responsible human-animal Earthling. I'm host Carrie Freeman. The views and opinions I and others express on In Tune to Nature do not necessarily reflect those of WRFG, its board staff, or volunteers. We're a progressive, indie, non-commercial station run largely by volunteers like myself, and thus we appreciate and need your support by telling your friends how cool Radio Free Georgia is. They can listen on the WRFG app on their phone, and by making donations at wrfg.org like I do. You can find podcasts of In Tune to Nature by subscribing on your favorite streaming sites or at our show website, facebook.com slash Nature. Good stuff ahead. Let's get to the show, folks. I originally recorded this show on the fishing industry and how it affects fish in 2018 with Dr. Jonathan Balcom. Everything about it actually is pretty timeless, but I do want to say three things have changed. One, he has published a new book called Superfly about flies and how amazing they are. And he also lives in Canada now, and we have more than 8 billion people on the planet. So that just makes the whole fishing situation even more perilous for sea animals. So I think you'll enjoy this really interesting broadcast. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be talking with uh, Jonathan Balcom, a biologist. We have him here in the studio, and we're going to be talking about fishing and from the not just fishing practices but also what are the fish experiencing from these fishing practices um let me tell you a little bit about our guest uh dr balcom jonathan was born in england raised in new zealand and canada and has lived in the united states since 1987. he's a biologist with a phd in ethology which is the study of animal behavior He's the author of four popular science books on the inner lives of animals, including Pleasurable Kingdom, Second Nature, and What a Fish Knows, which was a a New York Times bestseller. He's published over 60 scientific papers and book chapters on animal behavior and animal protection. Formerly Department Chair for Animal Studies with the Humane Society University and Director of Animal Sentience with the Humane Society Institute for Science and Policy, Jonathan works as an independent author and performs editing services for aspiring and established authors. He also serves as an associate editor for the journal Animal Sentience, and he teaches a course in Animal Sentience for the Viridis Graduate Institute. A popular speaker, Jonathan has lectured on six continents. He says the penguins eagerly anticipate his arrival in Antarctica. So if you know anybody down there (laughs) is looking for a speaker, he's interested. Jonathan currently lives in South Florida, where in his spare time he enjoys biking, baking, birding, and Bach, and trying to understand the lizards on his patio. Okay, let me turn his microphone up. (laughs) Welcome, Dr. Balcom. Hi, Carrie. Good to be here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's so nice to have you uh, in the studio today. That's good. Um, so we're going to be talking about, uh, your book, what a fish knows, but normally, uh, most of the people who interview you probably are having you tell all the many interesting stories from the book about the amazing lives and capacities of all different fish species. You tell a lot of fun and and compelling stories in the book. Um, and 
all about the amazing things they can do. But for our environmental show tonight, I thought we'd focus on the last chapter of your book, which is more about what we are doing to them. So that way our radio listeners can consider ways to protect fishes and reduce humanity's destructive practices. Um, and in that last chapter, you, you mentioned visiting a fish farm where they raise thousands of fish intensively in pens. Tell us what you learned about fish farming. Also, sometimes people call it aquaculture. Yeah, it's really a fish equivalent of factory farming that we know about um, on land animals with cows and pigs and chickens crowded into small spaces. And that's kind of key. A key aspect of it is the crowded spaces. Yeah. Um, it's been estimated that uh, adult salmon who are about a foot long, you can have uh, densities as high as 27 of those fish in the, an area of the size of a bathtub of water. So crowding, certainly as they get older and bigger, is, is an issue. And I remember going into that facility which is a state-of-the-art research facility in West Virginia and uh, seeing the biggest the main tank which was sort of an observation tank we could walk up a stairway and look down into it but you could also look through a window into the dim scene inside it was fairly dark um, very loud the, the, the pumps and machines mm. that run these tanks are, are pretty loud um, and the, the, the salmon were all, for the most part swimming in one direction in a circular uh. circular motion and uh, they do change direction every once in a while. I think they change the current or something. There's a, I think there's a way they compel the fish to swim in another direction. But the, certainly the key thing that you note more than anything else is just the density of the fish in the water. Uh, there are individuals who may swim briefly in another direction or jump out of the water. We, we witnessed all of that. You know, they're all, they're all individuals. And it's easy yeah. to forget that in that situation. But definitely the crowding is the most salient aspect of their lives, of their lives in that situation. It must be hard also particularly with salmon but really with any fish who are used to having so much freedom and swimming in <laughs> in so many directions to be first of all crowded in in communities that are kind of artificially created too many fish and maybe ones that they wouldn't normally be with and then they don't get to migrate and do all the things that they that's want right to. yeah these are animals who live for several years many years and they, they migrate from their natal streams out to the open ocean where they live for years and then they return to their natal stream to, to breed. It's a, it's a common misconception that they routinely do that only once, uh, but in fact, many, many are known to swim back into the ocean for another round. But um, it's a far cry, of course, that natural setting and, and those natural circumstances from the circumstances they find themselves in in, in uh, aquaculture operations. Yeah, and some of them are on land. It sounds like what you were looking at was like a tank on land, but then they also have them that are set up with nets or something in um, the in bays, right. or bays or just off the coast. Or yes, they're they're called typically called sea pens, yeah. and they are captive settings that are you know, the the fishes are actually in the native waters, not necessarily their own native waters, yeah. but certainly you know natural waters. But they're confined to net netted pens. Uh, there's a number of problems with that, uh, yeah. many of which are not, not, you know, there's certainly welfare problems with the fish are still in, in those situations, but also ecological problems such as the proliferation of sea lice and other parasites, which are not contained by the pens, needless to say, and a sea louse produces 22,000 eggs in one year, mm. and those eggs can drift out into these blooms into the surrounding water, affecting the other fishes passing by. The concentrated wastes from these sea pens is also very high, and there's a 
there's a there's a biologist um, in I think Norway who is documenting this to see just how high these concentrations are. So you have the same sorts of problems that you have in in factory farm settings on land. You have disease. The risk of disease is much higher because pathogens can spread very quickly among these densely populated populations in small confined spaces, and they can also leach out into the surrounding environment. So you have animal welfare and ecological problems. Yeah, and what how what is how what is the lice um what does that do is it like when we have lice on our head are they just biting them what how, yes and no. It's, it's actually involved? a little bit worse. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's considered to be a very se severe welfare issue because these lice, uh, they're chewing, they have chewing mouth parts, and uh, the fishes don't have limbs to push them off. Yeah. And uh, I guess they haven't learned the learned the lesson of help the other one because that would probably help their plight. But um, in in nature, they will solicit cl uh, louse removal from seagulls and and. Oh. Uh, even other cleaner fish and that sort of thing. So they, they do have some methods in, in the wild, but in captivity, uh, these lice chew into their yeah. bodies and they can actually chew in through their eyes, through their brains. Yeah. There's a thing called the death crown, which is the the, uh, the, the the pathology that results from these lice having their way with these fish and chewing in through their heads over over time. So it's so a pretty they have awful way to go. wounds on them, basically. Yes, that's, that's right. They cause, they cause wounds yeah. if they're untreated. Yeah. And I know there's an issue ecologically too with um, what with raising fish on land, and then because aren't they being fed fish that are wild caught usually? It's a good point. Right. It's it's a common misconception that uh, at the very at least aquaculture puts some relief on the wild fish populations. Yeah. But the reality is most of the fishes that humans like to eat, salmon, uh, tilapia, or tuna, and other some of the, these other fish species that are bred, um, are very high on the food chain. And they're predatory fishes, and mm. so what do they eat in the wild? They eat other smaller fishes, and that's what's fed to them in these captive settings. And those, well, those fish, so-called feed fish, menhadens, sardines, and the like, are caught in the wild. So there's still pressure on wild populations to feed these captive ones. So it doesn't really relieve pressure from from uh, wild fish populations. So it's still, I would consider it unsustainable then, in in that sense. You know, large numbers of humans eating animal products is pretty much unsustainable yeah. now anyway with the modern era, especially with, you know, over 7 billion humans on Earth. Utterly unsustainable. It's a very ecologically and, and energetically inefficient way to feed humans protein. And uh, we are beginning to discover other ways to do that, but there's a long way to go. Right. Uh, Dr. Balcom, besides being farmed, another way fish end up being killed and sold for food is being hunted by the commercial fishing industry. Tell us about the concerns you have with the various methods used by the fishing industry to capture and kill fishes in the oceans. Yeah, it's pretty awful, really, again, from a welfare perspective. I mean, the, the main methods are purse-saining, um, long-lining, and trawling. Those are, those are three prominent methods. And purse-saining involves uh, surrounding uh, uh, an identified population of uh, a school of fishes. Could be millions of them, herrings, for instance. Um, and then, um, and then surrounding them with this net that the boat floats in a circle. And with the modern technology, they can they can locate these large schools with with uh, sonar technology uh, and this sort of thing. Even helicopters go out. They don't really to, have a chance. The, the fishes don't really have much it? chance. As I say in my book, it's like bobbing for apples with the, your hands instead of your mouth. Yeah. And uh, so these fishes get surrounded, and the purse is drawn in beneath them. So it's like a purse-shaped net that is then enclosed in, uh, which eventually crushes all the fishes together and many of them will die of crushing um, if they survive 
survive the crushing of have the net being hauled out of the water uh, they they're they're likely to die of uh, suffocation on the boat deck and mm. possibly bleeding out if they're if they're cut with knives which is sometimes done with some species so none of those are very nice ways to go um, if it's long lining uh, fishes of various species uh, you know in that case these hooks are indiscriminate so you get many species of fish but you also get um, albatrosses and seabirds get get caught by these hooks uh, when they so go for the baits. So explain the long line. Is it yeah, this it's a, it's one long fishing line that hangs off the back of a boat or something? Yeah, it's, dry, it's, it's, it's released off the back of the boat. They can be 60 miles long. So oh, they're super, 60 they can get miles? 60, yeah. Oh so they God, can be super long. So and there's hooks at every at regular intervals. There, There is a technique of uh, putting ribbons, pink ribbons, which apparently is a deterrent for albatrosses, but it's not a deterrent for the fishes, and they, they get caught. Sea turtles also, marine mammals, can get caught up in these. So uh, there's those problems. But if the fish is caught, then it's on this hook for possibly days. Um, it's vulnerable to predation by other fish biting them that they can't really defend themselves against. And then if, the, yeah. if they're still alive, they're hauled in over long distances onto the boat deck um, to probably, if they're still alive, they would suffocate on the boat deck. So that's also a pretty horrible way to treat an animal. And then uh, the bottom trawling is the, the most notorious, really. Right. This is where nets are dragged along the bottom, typically a half to a mile deep. And uh, they're on heavy weighted rollers so that it stays along the bottom. It's essentially like bulldozing the bottom of the, the oceans. And it's Ridiculous. completely indiscriminate. Corals like that may have taken... Cutting it's or like clear-cutting a forest It's likened to clear-cutting. And... Um, Structures such as corals and, and vegetation that have grown there and, and sort of developed there over decades or possibly even centuries can be destroyed in one pass of one of these nets. And then it scoops up animals. I've seen filmed where they put cameras on these things and you can see these fishes swimming along the bottom just trying to stay out of that net and not knowing where to go because these nets are very wide, mm. these trawling, trawling nets. And that too, everything's hauled up on the boat, which leads to another uh, really sad atrocity of commercial fishing, which is bycatch because... Mm. A lot of organisms that end up on the boat deck are not so-called target organisms. They're, they're just not desirable, so they're considered waste products, and they're typically thrown back over dead or dying. So it's mm. a very wasteful industry. Yes. And it's estimated about 200, 200 million pounds of bycatch are tossed back overboard every day worldwide. Every day? Every day, 200 million pounds. So, yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of yeah. life lost. What a waste. Yeah, so every time someone's eating, whether it's a shrimp or... Uh, any kind of fish or they call seafood products there's an unknown number of other individuals who are probably killed to get that one individual right, collateral on the damage. plate yeah it's, it's good that you mentioned shrimp because shrimp is one of the worst because shrimp for, for bycatch problem yeah. because shrimp live on the bottom and so the typical methods to catch them involve trawling if it's not a if it's not a captive set setting. So the trawling um, and and that's the, in some cases some shrimp fisheries uh, ninety percent of the live catch is um, bycatch. Yeah. So about and that one. can include um, birds and marine mammals. Yes, as it well. can. There, there have um, been some effort, efforts with TED you know, turtle excluder devices, for instance, uh, which have helped to allow some turtles to get out of the of the nets. Yeah. But uh, inevitably, you still get a lot of uh, a lot of collateral damage from those species and others. Right. Um, and what would death be like for? Uh, a fish who's hauled up in one of these nets or ends up on a boat and it, in terms of, I don't know if science has studied kind of the, the suffocation or how long that takes for fish to die. 
Yeah, depending on the conditions, out of the water. right, it can be minutes to hours. Um, uh, one of the practices is that uh, fishes still living are brought on the boat deck or thrown on ice. And uh, some people have argued that may be a better welfare situation, but in fact, studies find that it's probably worse because it causes the fish to die a lot slower. So mm. they're suffocating over the course of, in some cases, well over an hour. So that's problematic. As for the way, other ways they died, there's one other we haven't really mentioned mm. yet. We mentioned the crushing in nets and the suffocation on the boat deck and, and bleeding, but also deep compression, especially for species who swim deeper in, in the water. So Like from the trawling, be, that would be uh, going trawling would on be the an bottom, example of that and then they get hauled problem. all the way up to the surface very quickly. That's right, that's right. And so they, the pressure changes, and their, their bodies are adapted to deep water conditions with high pressure. And uh, bony fishes have a swim bladder. It's a gas-filled sac that is useful for buoyancy control. And as they come up through lower pressure of the lower of the shallower water, the swim bladder expands in their bodies, and it, it causes various internal injuries. Causes sometimes their esophagus is pushed out of their mouth. Their their inner organs are crushed. Um, uh, their eyes can Gross. pop out. There's, there's technical uh, terms for all of this stuff. And uh, needless to say, uh, pretty horrible uh, things can happen to them. Yeah. And we were talking too. There's, there's sometimes where animals would get kind of stabbed to death as well. Were we, were we talking about the tuna when we were discussing that earlier? Yeah, typically tunas are caught in in the wild, out of the wild, and um, and they're huge fish. I think a lot of us fish. don't realize yeah. they're huge. Yeah, there's many and species, fast. and they range in size. But the largest, the largest tuna goes up to 1,500 plus pounds. Oh my gosh! And uh, they're very fast swimmers. They're apex predators. And they hunt in groups, and they're impressive. Very, very impressive creatures. They're like tigers of the ocean. Mm. And the typical methods, and I've seen film of this, is um, is they're caught in pursanes, and uh, they all get concentrated. These huge, powerful, muscular fish end up thrashing around in these in these nets that are then can made smaller and smaller, mm. and they get them more panicked. And the methods that I've seen uh, that they're hauled onto the boat deck is with a gaff, which is a big metal hook. So the fisherman gets within reach of this one of these tunas and just gaffs it kind of... I don't know if they aim for a particular part of the body, the head or the body, but they typically just hit the body and, and you know, stab it, essentially. It's like a stabbing. Yeah. And then haul, use that, that gaff You're to haul it up You're getting pulled up by, deck. like, a knife. Yeah, so it's a traumatic injury. Uh, it's a traumatic injury then compounded by suffocation and panic and everything else. Ugh. So not very nice. No. It's, it's, a, it's all pretty brutal. We don't have... Yes. Uh, the methods that we use to catch fish are, are developed based on efficiency, not on uh, ethics. <laughs> That's for sure. And also, um, there's so much, you mentioned all these nets and lines, but in, in, I was reading in your book about how they pollute the oceans, too. Yeah, I mean, so much of our activity is ocean polluting. I mean, uh, pollution of the oceans is one of the many crises facing, facing oceans, and, and all, all kinds of ships, be they fishing, fishing ships or commercial ships or, or ocean liners of various sorts, um, you know, there are efforts to control and contain that, but uh, huge amounts of plastic in particular ends up in the oceans. It's estimated, and, and fishing, certainly fishing, uh, leads to a lot of discarded and lost fishing gear. Uh, the, the estimate that I'm aware of was calculated by the World Animal Protection at about 640,000 tons of fishing gear are lost or discarded in the oceans every year. There's an additional tragedy to that, um, is that they, a lot of these nets continue to wreak havoc because yeah. they are still effective at, or partially effective at ensnaring animals, yeah. be they fish or sea lions who get them around their necks. Yeah. And so uh, bycatch is a, an ongoing problem with that as well. 
so these nets, even when the fisher uh, fishermen and women are not trying to yes. capture the animals anymore, the nets they've discarded are killing slowly, probably That's killing right. a variety of animals. That's right, and the animals ensnared in the nets attract other predators who may get ensnared as well, and eventually these nets get weighted down by the dead bodies and yeah. they sink to the bottom. Uh, for those just joining us on WRFG's In Tune to Nature radio program, we're speaking with best-selling author and biologist Dr. Jonathan Balcom, who recently studied the lives of fish for his latest book, What a Fish Knows. Um, now, many of us must many of us have not had that much experience with commercial fishing, but often we do encounter or may have participated in recreational fishing, like catching fish with a um, fishing <laughs> fishing pole and a hook in lakes, rivers, and streams. Um, what did you learn about a fish's experiences in terms of them being caught and released? Because a lot of people now are saying, oh, but I'm releasing them. Um, you know, so I'm putting them back. Yeah, recreational fishing is very, very uh, popular sport, particularly here in North America, but also in other parts of the world. And there have been uh, some scientific studies showing that it is actually contrib a significant contributor to uh, impacts on populations, and not to mention individuals of fishes uh, in both freshwater and saltwater habitats. I think the estimate is in the 40 billion, in the 40 billion uh, range of the number of fishes caught by recreational wow. fishing every year worldwide. So we're talking very, very significant yeah. numbers. And uh, sorry, your your question. Oh, it's was just a, it kind of about the cat, the experience of the fish in the catch and release right. pro process oh, yes. too, because a lot of people, you know, minimize that or say, because uh, we all get that if they, you catch someone and then you're going to actually eat them, that you are killing them. But I, a lot of other people are like, oh, well, I'm just doing this for fun and I'm putting them back, so it's fine. Yeah, and it's it's not totally fine. It's not fine at all. I mean, it's I, you know, I, I guess I'd favor it over over lethal use, but. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, there's a number of injuries that fishes incur when they're caught and released. And uh, obviously the hooks going into them, often hooks are swallowed, which can be lethal. Yeah. Um, whether or not the hook is removed, removal of the hook is, is can be lethal in itself. Um, and then the handling that happens. Uh, responsible fishermen use nets and or try to minimize the handling. But, you know, there's just only so much you can minimize handling when you're trying to remove a hook from a an animal who's panicked and, and yeah. maybe maybe wriggling and this sort of thing. So, I mean, uh, I saw a couple of young sharks, baby sharks caught on a boat deck in southern Georgia just a week ago. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was just painful watching those animals thrashing around. You know, such beautifully graceful, streamlined creatures who are moved so so effectively in the water. They brought onto land this foreign environment. They're helpless. They, they can't get themselves back into the water, especially not when they're on, they're on, the, on, the, on the end of a line. And so they can suffer physical injuries from that. Um, and then the loss of the slimy mucus layer, particularly on bony fishes, that's a very protective layer on the outside of the scales. And the handling can cause a lot of that to be lost, and that causes the fish to be at risk of invasion by fungal mm. infections and other parasites and that sort of thing. And there was actually a study that I cited in my book where they actually kept fishes in sea, in sea uh, cages for a few days after c capture and handling and found that rates of skin infection and mortality were higher uh, when they'd been handled than if they hadn't.
Right. So getting uh, just because they're being released doesn't mean they're going to live as long as they might have before because of the, the stress and, and the handling. Germany actually has ex outlawed catch and release fishing. Wow. You, you yeah. can only fish if you keep the fish. Uh, and the, 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 the rationale for that is not quite the same as because they're concerned about the, the health effects on, on uh, the fish. But it's more like a moral argument that yeah. uh, if you're only catching it for recreation, that doesn't justify causing the pain and suffering. If you're catching it for sustenance to eat, then uh, they allow that. Right. And so then we get into a whole other discussion whole about other discussion. do you need <laughs> to eat animals. Uh, with Both of us have been vegan for decades, so kind of yes. a lot of times you don't need to eat animals. Uh, well, we're running short on time, but what are some things that people can do as consumers and citizens to help aquatic animals and ocean life? Well, number one, the overarching thing that anyone can do and I recommend is, is simply to stop eating them. When, whenever we buy, whenever we eat a, yeah. a product, we, we buy it typically at the store. And when we buy it, we essentially are funding whatever practices went yes. into getting it there. So um, it's, 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 uh, it's immediately effective if people simply stop funding these industries. So that's job number one for anyone to do. Um, if somebody's, you know, absolutely dedicated to fishing, my brother, for instance, he lives an avid fisherman, doesn't want to stop. I, I always encourage people to use barbless hooks, so that at least can cause less damage to the fish. But um, you know, there's still a, a number of other problems with that. Um, you know, join a join Fish Feel is a is a group that does fish welfare work and okay, fish, fish protection. Fish, fish Feel. Feel, yeah, they have a Facebook page yeah. and they're they're active online. That that's an excellent group that I recommend people join. And, um, you know, you can do beach cleanups. You can remove plastic from the yeah. oceans. I, I do that when I snorkel on beach in South Florida. Um, there's a number of things you can do with local activist groups and meetups and that sort of thing. And Or you can always form your own group and write letters to the editor. Uh, when people yeah. show disrespect for, for fish, I had, a, I had an email from some, a reader this yeah. week who wrote a letter to the editor. That, that's an effective way to have your voice heard. Yeah. We need to recognize these are... I, and I've been com completely convinced of this. I didn't. I didn't believe it when I started working on my book. But I'm now convinced that fishes are the equals of mammals and birds and all other yeah. vertebrates. They are absolutely just as complex and vulnerable, and we need to treat them with equal, with just as much respect and compassion. Yeah, and that that's a fantastic lesson for us. Um, and just very quickly, what is your next book project? You, are you working on some different? I'm working animals? on a book on insects, in particular flies, a very, yeah. a very uh, um, underappreciated uh, <laughs> kind of reviled group of animals. I like taking on challenges yeah, from with the fishes animals that to I write flies. about. Yeah. Yes, so uh, that's a that's a challenging one, but they they do some amazing things. So it's yeah. really fun to research and write this book, and there's a lot of cool stories that can emerge from that yeah. too. Uh, well, well, Dr. Jonathan Balcom, thanks for joining us here in the W. WRFG studio to help us understand how to protect fishes and their habitats and the harms caused by fishing practices. We'll have you back in the future to tell us about uh, the lives of flies and their ecological importance. Great. Thank you. This is Carrie Freeman wrapping up In Tune to Nature. Have you ever been watching a movie or a news story and thought they were sending the wrong message about fellow animals and how we should view them or treat them? Or maybe they're just ignoring animals completely as if the planet is solely filled with humans and we're the only ones with any stories. Even though we share the planet with trillions of other animals, well, as a media scholar, I think it's a good idea for us media consumers to share our constructive feedback with media makers to let them know we care about how fellow animals are represented in media. And we don't want to see messages that make us feel threatened by certain animals or 
dismissive of animal interests or selfishly view them as mere objects for our use and consumption, instead of seeing them as the feeling, thinking individuals they are. If you're writing to a media maker on their social media page or via the contact form on their website, you could reference the media guidelines at animalsandmedia.org. They were co-authored by myself and Professor Dr. Deborah Merskin. And you can use those to help you bolster your argument in your letter and provide the media maker with a list of constructive ideas for more respectful and accurate coverage of fellow animals and the natural world we share. The media are a powerful cultural force shaping our beliefs, attitudes, social norms, and policies. So I think it's worth giving media makers in journalism, advertising, film, and TV guidelines for respectful rep representation of other species by sharing the animalsandmedia.org website with them. And if you want an open access journalism outlet that is already practicing animal inclusive journalism, there is sentientmedia.org. That's spelled S-E-N-T-I-E-N-T -E -E media.org. Thanks for speaking up and speaking out for those who can't.